0: Well, I don't know about you other parents out there, if you have little ones, but I feel like the pandemic here has become an excuse for a lot more screen time in our family. Uh, without as many structured extracurricular activities, I'm pretty sure our kids were logged into their school computers during the school year a lot more than they needed to be. And as a family, we just watched a lot more TV, especially when the weather got bad. Uh, call it a cop-out or an excuse or a smart parental strategy that's just the facts of what our year was like now with the opening up of the state and more things for our kids to do outside and more safe things to do outside as a family we're watching a lot less tv but one of the shows i don't regret at all having spent hours watching is ted lasso has anyone seen ted lasso out there Fantastic show, some fruity language, it's definitely a grown-up show, so don't, don't try and watch it with your children. Fantastic show, and, and the premise of the show is that Ted Lasso is a cliche, kind of div-to, southern American football coach, and so you can imagine in your brain probably like a Nick Saban looking like white visor with like a polo shirt and lots of quippy, like one-liners, southern accent kind of guy, and he has just won like a Division II or Division Three national championship. Now, at, uh, he's going into the summertime, and during the summertime, there is a fictitious English Premier League soccer team, football team, in England, and they're called AFC Richmond, and they are falling apart. Uh, they are losing games. They are failing financially, and most of all, their team is completely dysfunctional. They've got egotistical stars, they have uh, aging veterans who are so, you know, so full of themselves they won't give the younger guys any time, they have young talented players who are insecure and not getting any playing time, they are a mess. And so sort of like with nothing to lose and sort of everything to lose, they hire Ted Lasso, who of course knows American football, knows how to win at a lower level, but knows nothing about soccer. And they build this show as a comedy, and it is funny. It doesn't disappoint. But I think that the genius of this show is how Ted Lasso genuinely cares for other people. How he turns the team around. He he takes this group of misfits, and he creates a culture of joy and safety and accountability. And then once he earns their trust, they begin to heal and become transformed into better versions of themselves. And in a way, and I know this is a stretch, and do not hear me saying that Ted Lasso is like Jesus, but in a way, Ted Lasso does with this dysfunctional English soccer team what Jesus is trying to do with dysfunctional us in his Beatitudes. Think about it. In the original context— Jesus has been proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom, breaking into the world in real time and in real space early on in the first century A.D. He's been performing deeds of the kingdom, like, like healing the sick and the blind and the deaf. These are exactly the types of things that Isaiah the prophet was, was talking about would happen when the Messiah would come. And, 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 He is doing things that are bringing the new life of the kingdom in people's actual lives. But the core ailment of human beings is not merely physical, and it's not merely economic, it's not even merely social. Primarily, what human beings need to know deep in our core is that we're loved, and that we have a place in God's kingdom, in his plan, in his life, in his world, These crowds had heard Jesus saying the types of things that a Messiah was supposed to say. And they were witnessing Jesus doing the types of things that God was supposed to do when he would come in person, as the prophets would talk about. And so they gathered around Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to see what he was going to do. What is he all about? And so Jesus sees the crowds coming, he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, as a teacher would do, and he begins to teach them. And he begins to declare good news to this crowd of misfits. And he begins his sermon on the mount with eight declarations of blessing, or flourishing. And these eight statements of flourishing, or beatitudes as they're referred to, are typically broken up into two groups— Uh, not just by scholars who have nothing better to do than to break up things into two groups, but actually the grammar of the structure of the Beatitudes just divides up perfectly into two groups. Uh, The first four are called the passive Beatitudes. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn because they will be comforted Flourishing are the humble meek because they will inherit the earth, and flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which we talked about last week is hungering and thirsting for the justice of God in the world because they will be satisfied. Jesus looks out on the crowd of people who are actually poor in spirit, who are really mourning, who have been humbled by oppressive empires, who are desperately longing for the justice of God, and Jesus declares them, even them, flourishing. Why? Not because he's happy that they're having a hard time in life, but because of what God promises to do for them. They're passive Beatitudes because they don't require the hearer to do anything Right? They're they're flourishing because of what God will do for them, and because of what God will do in them. And that is good news. It's just news. Here's the facts. You're flourishing because of what God is going to do for you. Now, these first four beatitudes, let me just say, as I look out on this room, I know that not everyone has a perfect life but in general, we are not oppressed by the Roman Empire. In general, we're not, um, you are literally at church. These, these are the types of people who wouldn't be seen in temple or synagogue because their leaders have told them, you don't belong here. If you have a shriveled up hand or you're blind or deaf, you probably did something bad and God is punishing you, okay? So in general, we're not that crowd. And so these for passive beatitudes should also be somewhat convicting for you and me. Not because we're supposed to then strive to become poor in spirit or we should work harder to be sad. Okay? Uh, it's not none of that stuff. But it is because if you and I look closely, our money and/or our social status, and even our national status, like even. Uh, Americans aren't super popular in the world right now, um, but we have a certain power, like soft power, right? Like there, there's this, our, our passports can go more places than some other passports in the world, right? It, it, so we have all these kinds of privilege, and we have religious position. You have a voice in the church. You're literally here. Um, and all of that stuff can insulate us from the reality that without God, we're really nothing. Like we are truly in spirit. And if we have the heart of God, then we're going to mourn over the state of the world because it's messed up. And when one suffers, we all suffer. And when we take away the insulation of our privilege and our power, then we're quickly, if we're honest and really looking in the mirror, we're humbled. Like, we should be humbled. Uh, We realize that any success we have is not only a a function of your good choices. I I do want to acknowledge that some of you have made really good choices in the world. And you work really hard. But it's also your upbringing and your education and opportunities afforded you. And even your God-given disposition or skill set has given you certain opportunities. And this should humble us. So, the first four Beatitudes are great news for those who are suffering, and they're great convicting news for those of us who feel like, for the most part, we're winning at life, because they bring us in contact with reality. Now, as we move into the second four Beatitudes, uh, we're going to encounter statements that are still good news, but they're going to challenge the crowds, and they're going to challenge you and I as well, if, if we're listening right. So, if if I may be excused, another Ted Lasso illustration. The coach in that show has this group of misfits, his team, his locker room, and his coaching staff, really, who don't trust each other, and they don't live up to their potential, and they are angry, and they're arrogant, and Coach Lasso earns their trust by trusting in them. He sticks his neck out for them in front of the media. He goes to bat for them against the, uh, the ownership of the team. He believes in the process. And for weeks, he starts with the good news that everyone on this team and everyone on my coaching staff has a place of value and a voice on this team. That's just it. Good news, you're here. I'm gonna try and convince you of that. Notice he has not called anyone to do anything. He just asks that they believe that what he's saying is true. You have a place here. You can contribute. He simply declares good news of belonging and the safety to make mistakes in a culture of honesty and trust, okay? But then he doesn't stop there. Once the players begin to believe, Coach Lasso encourages his star striker to be less selfish because he's drawing three defenders and there's like two teammates always open on the other side of the box, so if you would just pass the ball, we will score goals as a team, and you'll get assists, which are pretty great, right? And and he convinces his kind of over-the-hill veteran who is entitled, he convinces him, hey, you would be a really great mentor, and you'll be more impactful coming off the bench in the last third of the game when your old legs can actually run hard for the third of the game, right? We need your veteran wiles at the end of the game. And once people feel safe and part of the team, it frees them up to seek the good of other people because they're no longer trying to earn their worth by their performance. They have already earned it as part of the team. Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount with four of eight beatitudes that aim to lift up the poor in spirit and the downtrodden and the cast aside, all those who admit their desperate need for Jesus. But once we begin to accept that Jesus has a place for all of us on his team, that we don't need to earn it, then he sets out to inform us of more good news. And that is that the way of his kingdom involves mercy and purity of heart, and peacemaking, and an enduring, sometimes, persecution, even for those who follow his kingdom, who are righteous. Now, we're going to be taking each of these in turn over the next few weeks, but tonight we're going to focus on the fifth beatitude, the first of the so-called active beatitudes, and it is this, flourishing are the merciful, because they will receive mercy. Now, the first thing we ought to do, I think, as teachers might agree, is, like, we better define mercy, because, like, if it's all about mercy, what is that all about? Uh, The Greek word in this beatitude is eleemonis, which has a connotation of compassion. Compassion in two directions, okay? So mercy is compassion in two directions, and on the one hand, it's compassion toward others who owe you a debt, It could be a literal debt, like oftentimes we hear that word, we think financial, it could be that. Uh, In most cases, it refers to a debt of honor or offense or a sin against somebody else. And in that sense, mercy is about extending the compassion of forgiveness or relief of guilt or relief of debt. But mercy also means a whole lot more than just not giving someone what they deserve or just exacting what they owe. Mercy means actually helping someone out of their predicament. And in that sense, it's an active thing. Ethicist Glenn Stassen says that eleemonis, that word mercy, could be translated compassion in action. Compassion in action. So it's not just forgiving a debt, but helping someone to find financial sustainability. It's not just forgiving an offense, but it is working to restore a person to healthy relationship again. I mean, haven't we all been there where we've forgiven someone, but at the same moment sort of like written them off at the same time? Like, all right, I just want to, I want to get over this. Peace out. I, I don't really want. But mercy is forgiveness and then working to reestablish the relationship if it's possible. It's not just withholding judgment, which is one form of mercy, but it's working toward reconciliation as far as it depends on you and me. Active compassion. I like that. See, far too often, far too often, we speak of compassion or of being a compassionate person as a feeling, or as an emotion that changes the way we might talk about others, or it might change the way we vote, but it is easy to sort of value signal our compassion without being merciful. It's easy to value signal our compassion on social media, by the things we like, or the things we post, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're being merciful Because without being generous of spirit and generous of time and resources at the same time, uh, we're not truly being merciful. Mercy, compassion in action, it's pretty great. But of all the things in the world that Jesus could talk about, why is mercy one of only four active Beatitudes? He he was only picking four things and he picks mercy as 25% of them. Well, I have... I have a hunch on why he does that, and I have a slam dunk. I'll start with the hunch, because that's just Chris's opinion, and then I'll give you, like, the slam dunk, which is Scripture. So, uh, my hunch is this. With the first four Beatitudes, Jesus is signaling to his original audience, an audience that, remember, has literally been oppressed by the Roman government, has been cast aside by the religious elite, has been underrepresented in government and in the marketplace, Jesus is declaring to this group of people good news. That God has seen them, that God has heard them, and God says, you're flourishing, you're part of my team, part of my family, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Woo! That's what they, okay, so the good news to those people. And it would be very tempting for this group of people then to hear God's promises, and to try to enact those promises as their divine right, like promises of inheriting the land, promises of comfort, promises of satisfaction for justice. I'm going to quench my hunger and thirst for justice because God says he's going to do it, and I'm just going to help God out and advance the project, okay? So it would be tempting to try and solve, or or to take those promises by force as if they were our divine right. I like history too much to just allow that to go unspoken. And we need to remember that every time oppressed peoples have risen up in their own strength, Without God against oppressors, the outcome has been, over time, more oppression. The Nazis (laughs) were an oppressed people. And they found a leader that said, hey, I will, I'll get you justice. They said, okay, what will it cost? Well, not not much, and then it cost more and more and more. I mean, we forget that. I always just was raised like the Nazis are just the bad guys. And, you know, of course, they're horrible. But you know what I'm saying? Like, they were a solution to a social problem. There was a vacuum of power. All right. Uh, We sometimes forget that the Soviet Union started as a socialist experiment intended to serve the poor. I mean, that was the whole purpose. And then it kind of went sideways, in my opinion. Um, Pilgrims in North America fled Europe because of religious persecution. And then they proceeded to get here and start oppressing the indigenous people. Like, well, we don't really care about you. It's our divine right to do this. And we do this over and over and over again. We act unmercifully toward other people because we think we have a divine right to do so, to grab my justice that God promises, and to grab my satisfaction, and to grab my comfort, and to grab my slice of the kingdom now. Far too many of our social movements today, when conducted in the flesh alone, claim to be righteous, but there's very little mercy in the attitudes and methods. The way we live out the kingdom is just as important as the kingdom ethics themselves. The ends do not justify the means in God's economy. In fact, the means often communicate the value of the ends when it comes to God's economy. Just look at how God relates to us himself. The way God redeems humanity Is just as important as the redemption itself. The package is as important as the outcome. God becomes human to rescue humans. He became part of the created order to rescue the created order. God didn't just write about mercy and then send it like on a scroll in a tube, like at the bank thing where it sucks your deposit slip to the teller from your car. I mean, I know that that's stupid, but there's God of the universe. He could have just given us the information and said, you guys run with it, if that was the plan. But he takes a very uneconomical route because the method is part of the message of what God, how he does. It is so important. Okay, so that's my opinion that God literally exemplifies mercy. He doesn't just talk about it. And so when we are about God's work, we need to exemplify mercy as well. The way we do things, the way we talk about things, our attitude is just as important as what we do that's my opinion. Now, this is the slam dunk scripture. Just don't, if you disagree with this one, you got a problem with the Bible, okay? So why is this so important? Because it's one of the, the things at the very, is at the very center of the character of God. You know, God is many things, and uh, theologians and philosophers will talk about, you know, his omniscience, he will talk about all the ontology of God, and all the things he can do, and doesn't do, and maybe chooses not to do, wow, all the stuff, right? But at At his core, God is merciful. Like the way he is portrayed in scripture, he's he's merciful. God demonstrates this, this kind of axiom of being merciful by becoming flesh, by becoming vulnerable and weak and limited and mortal. He becomes a servant king. He becomes unpopular. He becomes righteousness embodied in a human being. And he gives himself for rebellious image bearers of him, which is like us, like every human being. He teaches things like the prodigal son, a story about mercy to illustrate the mercy of God, and if we're going to enjoy God's kingdom, we're going to need to learn to live into being merciful. Merciful. It's a good idea, right? Like I like when people are merciful to me And I like the feeling of when it's easy to be merciful to somebody else and I and I and I get it right But Man, like really godly mercy is really difficult It's really difficult. You 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 don't even need to use your imagination very much to know that And, and, and so how how is it good news then that God is all of a sudden? You know, you get these first four passive beatitudes. Ah, you're in, da, 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 and now He's calling us to be merciful, which is so hard. I, I'm horrible about being merciful on myself. <laughs> How is this good news? Well, first, the obvious. It's good news because it's not blessed are the powerful, or blessed are the winners. Ooh or blessed are the popular, or the intelligent, or the good-looking, or the connected. You kind of see where I'm going. It could have been a lot of other axioms that would have been bad for most of us, because if you're in a world, like if God's economy, or God's ethic of his kingdom was blessed are the powerful, then there's most people aren't going to be blessed in that world, And the way I see, and I keep coming back to this, I know I say it a lot, but if God is really God, like, you don't get to choose who He's like. Like, I know that you can always choose what gods you worship, and you can create idols for yourself, and you can look at other religions. I I understand all that, but like, like, for a thought experiment, if there really is a God, and there's one creator, and then that's just who it really is. Like, it doesn't really matter, who else we think it is, right? So if there's just one God, and that's how that God really is, then what good news that he values mercy and not perfection, right? He values so highly compassion and action and not self-actualization, right? Like, ah, that's refreshing. So there's why that's good news. Uh, But it's also good news because God helps us to become merciful, it is a risk. (laughs) It is a risk to truly live mercifully. Uh, It's costly, Uh, and that's why I think it's so important that we have this promise of God that He will show mercy to the merciful, Um, because it is not necessarily going to get you very far in this world to be merciful. It's important that it is worth it (laughs) to be merciful, and I know, like, I, I know in some philosophy, like, it's Altruism is a really high value. I, I actually think Like that's sort of reading certain philosophy into the gospel because jesus talks a lot about reward and later in the sermon on the mount, you know, he's like uh, You know those people that want to pray out in public to be noticed well, that's their reward But you when you pray in your prayer closet when no one's looking well that you'll have a reward in heaven I don't think he's just talking about metaphors like so I'm thankful that there is some kind of reward for being merciful, that God's going to show me mercy. Because it costs a lot to be merciful. Because it, it will mean sacrifice. Being merciful will mean not always claiming your rights. It might mean that you weren't wrong, but mercy is extending grace to someone who was wrong. And it's not just in, like, arguments. It's like traffic altercations, property line disputes, whose dog pooped on your yard. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is real-life nitty-gritty stuff. And the more merciful we are, the more we lean into the promise that we will receive mercy. Uh, Otherwise, it just stops being worth it. (laughs) Now, you may be thinking... Chris, this isn't really good news because I'm playing the logic out, and if the merciful receive mercy, I'm not very merciful. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking, I don't feel very merciful. I don't treat others with the kind of mercy that I would like to receive. Is there any hope? What about me? How can I become merciful? Or is there a pass or something, or a back door? Um, First of all, take comfort. Can I preach good news? Can I preach gospel? I hope that's all I'm preaching because that's what Jesus wants me to talk about, right? Take comfort in the fact that it is Jesus who creates these character qualities in us. I've said it since the first sermon on the Beatitudes, and I'm going to say it again. Jesus is not looking for people who already embody these qualities. Without Jesus... No one embodies these qualities all the time, and that's the point. Jesus is looking for people who are willing to trust him, who are willing to grow, okay? So if you want to grow in mercy, here's, I believe, how we do that. You believe, you trust that the first four Beatitudes are truly about you. Embrace the reality that you desperately need Jesus because of your own poverty of spirit. If you can do just that, just that, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. Mourn the fact that you are not as merciful as you would like to be. Embrace the humility of one who needs help to be merciful hunger and thirst for a world in which the justice of Jesus reigns, even if it means sacrificing some of your worldly privilege. If we start down that track of receiving the first four beatitudes as statements about us, it won't be long till we're growing in mercy. When we come to see how powerful God is, and how merciful he has been with us, we will begin to develop compassion and action for other people. Let us close by embracing the stance that leads to the mercy of God. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on us, a church of rebels. Lord, have mercy.